Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Movies in Focus podcast. I'm Niall Brown. Running on HBO for seven seasons and 93 episodes from 1989 to 1996, Tales from the Crypt was a wonderfully ghoulish show that was based on Bill Gaines's EC Comics imprint of the same name. A show which had a who's who of talent in front of and behind the camera, Tales from the Crypt has long been one of Movies and Focus's favourite television series. Executive produced by Joel Silver, Richard Donner, Robert Zemeckis, Walter Hill and David Geiler, the show was a huge success due to its dark tales and even darker humour. From the second season onwards, Tales from the Crypt was produced by Gil Adler and A.L. Katz, a duo who oversaw the show's production and its rise to glory, or, as the Crypt Keeper would say, rise to gory. As the show was winding down on television, it made the leap to the big screen with Tales from the Crypt Presents Demon Knight in 1995 and Tales from the Crypt Presents Bordello of Blood in 1996. It's the latter film's troubled production that led A.L. Katz to create the How Not to Make a Movie podcast. Essential listening for those who like Tales from the Crypt or have an interest in juicy stories on the making of movies and television. A.L. Katz joined the Movies in Focus podcast to talk about the making of Tales from the Crypt, how the How Not to Make a Movie podcast came about, as well as the new series that he hopes to make with Gil Adler. As always, I hope you enjoy what we had to talk about. You can hear me and see me okay, yep? I can can do both. That's brilliant. Well, thank you for joining me today. Let me ask you just a completely stupid question. How, How do you pronounce your first name? Niall. Niall, okay. Niall and Neil, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm married to a Brit, and my experience in traveling through the, the islands over the course of the, the <laughs> years is you bump into places that are spelled one way and pronounced, good God. Yes. No, uh, Niall. Well, I mean... Then there's whales. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and good luck spelling that, yeah. <laughs> it's like, how, how do you spell it? I guess that's what. But yeah, no, it's great to talk to you today. Pleasure's mine. Um, I mean, I'm a huge fan of going way back, Tales from the Crypt, and now your podcast, which I think it's phenomenal. I mean, thank you. When when, when I first heard the first uh, sort of the the first season, I kind of blitzed through it in about a week. So I listened to them all. And then it's sort of the, the latest one drop, which is another great sort of episode. So it's great to have you and sort of sort of talk to you about your career and the things that you've done and, and are doing. Happy to tell you whatever you want to know. Yeah. I, I'm, I, I'm an open book, but, but I think that's why the podcast in season one, you know, as, as, I, as I talk about it at, at the top of the season one of the podcast, I have no access to grind. I I have dealt with my demons. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it was it was not a fun it was not a fun struggle, but I'm grateful because you know I I am born again, not in a religious sense, in a life sense, and I got really lucky and I I bounced, and I rediscovered a passion for storytelling I didn't even realize I had, and the the first story that I suddenly realized I had to tell was my own. And it, it took a while to figure that out, but you know, the, that's what the podcast really was. It was part of my own mental therapy, my mental health to, to get that story off my chest. But again, it, it wasn't because I, I had any axes to grind. I, Part of what I needed to do in telling the story was to confess my own sins. And that's the, the, the beauty of it, that, that first season in, in particular, where you, you kind of go, I mean, ultimately this movie was made um, and there's, there's a multitude of reasons why it didn't work. And, you know, everyone, including myself, is part of that reason, you know, and that's what you sort of you come out with. And then you see the, the big picture. It's, there's one point in, in, in one of the early episodes where, where I, I said during one of the interviews segments, if we were all Greek, this would be a tragedy. 
and it, it really is as a as someone who studied dramatic literature as, as part of my education that really rings true because the strange thing about what makes a greek tragedy a tragedy is that one thing sets everything in motion and suddenly everyone is trapped and there's no way out there's you're damned if you do you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't and you know we we were we thought we were going to make a movie that was going to change the direction of our careers, Gil and I, and, and you know, to a degree, the members, the rest of the members of the crypt team. You know, we, our ambitions were in one particular direction, and when Universal pulled the, the rug out from under us, okay, it was an awful experience from our point of view. But if if one looks at it purely from Universal's point of view as a business decision, I cannot fault them. It makes complete and total sense. Why would you not do that? I mean, who really, from their from their point of view, they didn't care about Dead Easy, the movie that we wanted to make. Nothing here or there to them, and they spent relatively pennies yeah. on the script. Hey, here they had a horror movie script with the name names Bob Zemeckis and Bob Gale, two names that had sold kajillions number of movie tickets. And they spent half a million dollars on it. I really, I, I you look at Universal and, and you go, why wouldn't you? Yeah, although that is the crazy thing that they spent a, a half a million dollars on a student script and then basically had to rewrite it. <laughs> well, but it wasn't, a, you know, when, when they bought it, they didn't care about the script. This, this yeah. was simply a deal point how to hold on to a star. And this was simply, and this was Bob simply being, I mean, very, you know, generous and loyal to a writing partner and just you know finding a way to you know keep keep a little cash in his pocket and geez it's it 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 was these were these were ripple effects and it was a ripple effect that changed the the course of that second movie and changed it from one movie to the other and because that happened really it set off a whole other series of ripple effects. You know, when you do things for all the wrong reasons, nothing good happens. And that is also one of the, the object lessons that I, I, that we're trying to, that we tell. And at any point, you know, Gil and I acknowledge today, yes, at any point we could have put our feet down and said, no, we're not gonna do this fire us. That was always an option. But it was not an option that we were ever realistically going to take because that would have been really suicide, career suicide. Yeah. Of a kind. And so it's an impossibility. It's the Greek tragic. It's the Greek tragedy. You know, you, oh, you could go that way and be incredibly noble, but you know, to what ultimate end? Uh, and so, you know, rock meet a hard place. And, and sometimes that's that's the circumstance that life puts you in. And, and hey, from, from a storytelling point of view, it doesn't get any better than that. And, and when things go further and further into the bad, well, well, that's just better and better storytelling. And, and hey, that's what happened. And why not just tell the whole thing? That's it. What made you decide to ultimately, I mean, presumably you, you are a writer. What made you go, I'll, I'll use, a, use a podcast as a way of telling it, as opposed to sort of putting it into a book or that sort of thing? Circumstance is a very funny thing. It's, there's, there's always a process that, uh, among the things that I did when I began to get mentally healthy again, I had a, I have a great therapist and she has suggested that I write things down. And I wrote a book uh, about really once it part of my darkness. I was quite convinced that not only did I have no stories to tell, but the least interesting story of all was my own. I was into a, such a place of, of such self-negation. It was terrible. But when I got out of there, when I bounced, suddenly I understood the importance, not just of my own story, of being able to tell my own story as a point of pure, just being healthy. 
a storyteller who cannot tell his or her own story ain't much of a storyteller. If you can't tell yours honestly, really, can you tell anyone else's honestly? Probably not. And so it was, it was cathartic. Um, and I was desperately in need of it. And when, when I wrote this book, it was called How to Live Bullshit Free. And, uh, uh, a Practical Guide to Not Killing Yourself. It is unpublished at this point, but the, the chapter devoted to Bordello of Blood was 26 pages. And so I, I had already written it. And these are stories I've been telling my social circle forever. Obviously, these were important to me, and in, you know, I, I was screaming to myself, hey, this is important to you. And it wasn't until I bounced and suddenly I wanted to tell it. And I, a group of, of uh, a, a fan group called Dads from the Crypt, uh, Jason Stein got a hold of me and, and uh, I said, hey, you know, we, we, here's what we do. We, do um, we, we review all the episodes of Tales from the Crypt and we give parenting advice. Well, they had me. That, that to me was just so hysterical and outside the box. It was, you know, hey, whatever you want to do, man. I'm, yeah, sure, 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 you can interview me. And we had a lovely interview. I, I forget which, which episode it was about, <clears throat> but it was, it was great fun interviewing them. And, and shortly thereafter, Jason asked, you know, we're going we're gonna to do a, a review of, of of the second movie, Bordello of Blood, you want to do a you know, little interview about that? And I said, Jason, the story of the making of Bordello of Blood is more than just one podcast. And I sent him the chapter from the book. And he said, I see what you mean. This is like a, a podcast unto itself. And suddenly we began talking about that. And uh, to me, it was very important that Jason be part of the, the process of putting it together because the, really the fan point of view was, in, was vitally important. Yeah. One of the, especially as I was putting the podcast together and telling this, this story now as to why the podcast, well, getting people to read anything is, is impossible. Yeah. Even in this business, it's so hard, but you can get them to listen to things and watch. And so I was, I had been doing another podcast for a couple, you know, for, for a couple of years called the Atheism Project podcast, which was, I was doing with a, I'm a diehard atheist and I have a, a dear social friend who is a Presbyterian pastor. And so we had been doing this, this casual conversation about you know, spirituality and religion and atheism and I had grown comfortable with a microphone. And so, you know, the, the idea of, of trying to think of this, to tell this as a podcast, it wasn't terrifying. Uh, and as I began to script it out, because aside from the interviews, I, I script, you know, everything that I say is pretty much scripted because if, if, if I'm not scripted, I'll do what I'm doing now. I just go on and on and on. Hey, man, I'm hypomatic. You know, I'm, I'm, I am, I'm proudly bipolar. Uh, it's just, it's just how it is. I, I, I am what, what I am. Uh, and so I script me. <laughs> I script me. And, I was going to ask if you did that because the, the, the narrative within each episode is so tight that I did... I yeah, no, 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 but, 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 you know, I, 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 I write, I just write very honestly. I'm, um, and, and, you know, what I'm, what I've, what I've taught myself to do is to treat the microphone like a friend and, and really in essence, and, and I never talk to it. I talk across it and it, it's like, in a way I, I, I'm, I treat it like therapy, right? And I I try to be as honest as I can. So I I know I, I I wrote what I wrote as honestly as I could. Now all I have to do is say it as honestly as I can, and that's that's all I'm ever trying to do. And by scripting it, I I I think I I get me. 
I nail me better that way. Right. Yeah. But season two will be a little bit different because I can't. I've got I've got a partner. I've got Gil. And so I, I it's it, it's more like like the Faithism project was, you know, so I'm, I'm have to go back to uh, but the cool thing is with with the, the podcast as Gil and I are going to do it, it it's going to be you know, fairly interview centric. You know, we'll talk about here's some of the things that, that are upcoming. Uh, we will do podcasts devoted to writing. Cool. We'll do podcasts. I, I want to do a podcast about screenwriting in particular, because I I personally believe that, that the screenwriting form is is hostile to the writing process. It's a format that only the Directors Guild of America could love. In fact, it's really because of what the, the DGA needs that the form is what the form is. It really is designed so that the first can turn you know, uh, that a draft into uh, into a board. Yes. And in fact, that's how a lot of the, the screenwriting software is now integrated with with the scheduling software that, that that first assistant directors, which is, you know, the the thing about the screenwriting form entirely to its credit and, and, and where it came from. It's it's a technical document. Yes. It is, it is really, really meant for the department heads, uh, you know, and the information there is fairly basic. Is this an interior or exterior? Is it day or night? And if I'm outside, where am I? If I'm inside, where am I? And what roughly does the room look like? Yeah. So that the set, so that the, the set deck people know what, to, what to, to put in there and the props people know what to put in there. It's, it's really by design and necessity, a technical document. Yeah, it strips the literature out of it and sort of just makes it very kind of succinct into what it is. Right, the odd thing is that's not how we experience the finished product. Yeah. And in essence, the way that, that uh, the current screenplay is designed, it's really old fashioned. It's kind of proscenium arch, cut to proscenium arch, cut to proscenium arch. And that's not how we experience the language of cinema is so much more sophisticated and the audience is so much more sophisticated in in the way that they understand the cinematic language hey when i got to, to this town in 1985 we couldn't jump cuts <laughs> you were a stupid little hack who didn't know anything about filmmaking if you jump cut it you know and edgar wright edgar wright would never he would never get a job in this town <laughs> but now we all do now everyone does edgar wright yeah you know and and it's because the the language that D.W. Griffith really invented has evolved. And unfortunately, the screenplay has not evolved with the form, with, with the language. And so screenplays themselves reflect a very old way of, of, of imagining this yeah. world. And one of the things that, that I, an episode, so I've just, I've just given you a preview of the episode of, of uh, we will have a couple of other writers together and we will talk about the screenplay form. You know, and, and, and again, it's, it's how do you tell a story because the audience really is so far ahead of the form. Yes. And so how does one overcome the form in order to tell an audio visual story that Hey, gosh, when I think of a movie like The English Patient, which travels so fluidly back and forth in time, you know, you can't, to represent that accurately on the page, I'll finish this little diatribe with this. I've always thought of, of a screenplay as having two lives. Yes. If the first life really is as a piece of literature. And it really, it's, it should, ref the goal in my mind should be the experience of reading it should as closely approximate the, the experience of viewing it and hearing it as the writer can possibly pull off.
that should be the goal. And then if you're, if you're fortunate and, and the, the movie making gods smile upon you and you can get it made, well, then it's got to transition from the, you know, the, the pretty thing into the, into the efficient thing that helps everyone get their work done. There's a story that at some point we'll tell in season two of the How Not to Make a Movie <laughs> podcast, and I'm gonna uh, then I'll, I'll I'll drop right here. It, it rather instructive thing. This happened when when I started doing Tales from the Crypt. I was really 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 lucky. I was not qualified to be a showrunner in the way that I ran that show, but I was, um, and I was a little naive about certain things. And the first script that I wrote, that Gil and I wrote, that uh, that got that got into the production pipeline was um, Deadweight. Whoopi Goldberg, James Remar, uh, Vanity, uh, uh, John Reese davis Toby Hooper, Hooper directed. <clears throat> and day one of the production meeting, and all the department heads, every, everyone is there. And this is, for me, this is such a proud moment. I'm, not only have I written the script, I'm one of the damn producers. I'm sitting at the producer's table, for fuck's sake. <laughs> I'm feeling like a, like in Yiddish, we would call it a macher, <laughs> a macher's macher. Now I had written this, Gil had written, but yeah, I will take, uh, I'll take responsibility for the poetry. I'd written a line. It's hot. This is the opening line of the fade in the jungle. It's hot. It's so hot, even the palm trees are sweating. That's what I wrote. Very pretty. Now we're sitting in the production meeting. And F.A. Miller, our production manager, is, is leading it, and he is reading and going, okay, it's hot, so hot, the palm trees are sweating. Okay, how are we going to make it look like the palm trees are sweating? And now a conversation begins amongst <laughs> the production personnel, how are we going to make it look like the palm trees are sweating? And me, the producer writer, sitting at the producer table, is suddenly going, thinking to himself, oh, my God. I guess that's a metaphor, everybody. You, yeah. you, you should not be no. Don't take it literally, yeah. <laughs> and this goes on for about because uh, I, I don't know what to say in a minute, two minutes, three minutes going, and finally I go, uh, wait, 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 and I finally I I said, look, don't worry about it. I was being metaphorical, and there's a moment, and F. A. Miller says, okay, and he turns on to the next thing. But the way that he said, all right. Oh, actually, he said, all right. right? It, was, it, it was in such an F.A. Miller kind of a way, really the subtle message which don't do that again. Yeah. <laughs> and I sat there not feeling quite so Maher-ish <laughs> anymore. It was a whole education about screenplays and what they need to be yeah. in, a, in a very painful heartbeat. And presumably the next time you wrote it, it was just, it's hot. And that was it. <laughs> you didn't go into it. Oh, I, I think it took me a little while to, to, to learn the difference, but yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, after, but by the time the season was over, I, I, I think I, I began <laughs> to find my way as both a writer, but also as, as a producer who, you know, when you're going to put the script out to your, to your production team yeah it it needs to serve their needs above all and so yeah i fortunately i think that was a, a quick education in how to do my damn job well it must have been a fantastic film school i mean you're there yes with okay. these directors coming in on a weekly basis and you've got the best of the best great actors i mean I, I consider myself incredibly lucky that one of my bosses was Bob Zemeckis. And everything I know about the collaborative process, really, I learned from that man. Uh, he's, he's got a remarkable ability to, to make, well, to, 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 to get everyone to invest in, in what really is his vision. And, when the when I came aboard uh, the show, when, when Gil and I came aboard, one of the things that was had already been written and was because this was going to be the last season of Tales, uh, season three was supposed to be the last season, and the final episode was going to be Bob Zemeckis's 
uh, episode yellow. Yeah. And that was supposed to be the last episode. <clears throat> but two thirds of the way through, things, our fortunes had changed and suddenly this wasn't gonna be the last episode, it was gonna be a celebratory and on to the next couple seasons episode. So it was still going to be huge, gigantic, huge. And Bob wanted to, he wanted to pay homage to one of his favorite movies when he was in film school, uh, Stanley Kubrick's Paths of Glory. It's a World War I story starring Kirk Douglas. And what Bob wanted, Yellow is a World War I story, he wanted Kirk Douglas. The problem was the script that had been written was, was not good enough to get Kirk Douglas. It, it, was, it was too obvious. It, it wasn't subtle and, and, and subtlety was gonna be needed to, to, to pull it, to pull the drama across the finish line, but also to get Kirk Douglas. <clears throat> so it was my job to, to get Kirk Douglas. And, you know, I, I don't know. I just try to write honest characters. I, I, they, they just have to ring true inside my head is what real, real honest to goodness people would do, say, think how they behave. And that's, that's what I wrote. And we got Kirk Douglas. It's a great episode of, which it's, it's a very un Tales from the Crypt episode of Tales from the Crypt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it, it's, it's a little out, outside the box. Yeah. Um, but I think it was also going to be a, a one of the two-fisted tales. It was, you know, they, I don't, they had these, these couple of shows they were trying to figure out and they, they couldn't figure out what it was going to be. And so it also became Yellow, part of the Two-Fisted, I think it's part of the Two-Fisted Tales trilogy too. It might be, I, I got it. It all runs together in my head. Um, but the thing about Bob Zitt, uh, and I really experienced it when we did his, his, his last episode, uh, uh, You Murderer. Um, I went up to, Gil and I went up to, to Bob's house uh, for lunch just to talk about what he wanted his episode to be. We, he had selected, he wanted to do You Murderer. And we knew this was subjective camera, probably gonna be a subjective camera show because that's, that's how the comic is. Uh, and so we have lunch and, and he put the dishes aside and he says, all right guys, here's, here's what I wanna do. I, I, wanna just, I wanna do a subjective camera show, but from the point of view of a dead guy. Uh, and, Okay, okay, all right, that should be interesting. Of course, you want to pick me up and find out how he got to be a dead guy, but okay. And uh, here's the other thing, I, I, I want the dead guy to be played by Humphrey Bogart. Guys, how are we gonna do this? And that's the key to, to Bob. He will give you an, the, 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 the tantalizing, but maybe impossible task. And then he'll ask the question, how are we, <laughs> going to do this and of course you cannot answer like some guy from maine get there from here that's that's not an answer yeah. uh you're going to have to figure out how we are going to do this and if you in virtually every bobsy movie there's at least one minute usually one moment two or three shots or scenes that are absolutely <clears throat> if you know Filmmaking, it's impossible. Yep. It's an impossible shot. How, uh, there's a moment in Castaway when Tom Hanks climbs the mountain that first time and he surveys the entire 360 of his circumstance. It's an impossible shot because Tom's in the shot the whole time and there's not enough room up there for a crew or a camera. It's an impossible yeah. shot. It's literally, if as you watch it, if, if, if you understand what you're looking at, first of all, the audience has no idea that it's, it's impossible. That's part of it. He's not doing it to dazzle the audience. He's got an idea for a way to see something that you haven't seen before. Yeah. And it's gonna require an impossible solution to get this impossible shot. But it's never really impossible. It's a matter of, getting the group to think. And once you've seen that work, you suddenly realize the goal is always to make the sum be greater than the parts. 
And the more you can elicit greatness from everyone around you, hey, the better, the better you're going to look. It, it's it really it's a little bit of of, of uh, Tom Sawyer getting everyone else to to paint his white picket fence yeah. for him. Uh, yeah. And then then the opposite of that seems to be Joel Silver. <laughs> it, Where... kind of, you know, kind of yes and kind of no. The the perverse thing about <clears throat> about Joel. When you when you look at all the stories that we we, we tell about Joel and and wow, there's just no one no one quite like Joel. I mean, there are a couple. There's the Scott Rudens. There there are a couple. You know, there are this town attracts those impresario kind of people, but Joel is very particular unto himself. And as crazy as Joel can be, as crazy as working for Joel can be, at the end of the day we'd all be open to working with him again because he, he, I don't know. He has, his taste is quite interesting. And looking back, geez, I remember, I remember the day when I was doing Crypt, he pressed his copy, his personal copy of, of the Sandman, the graphic novel, the Sandman into my hands. He said, read this. Now, at the time I was too stupid <laughs> to realize what was actually happening. And I didn't even read it. I'm ashamed to say that it was so, so bloody stupid. Be that as it may, but there's a certain creative generosity in Joel. There's a certain, yeah, uh, he's, He's not the creator himself, but he he puts together a party. Yeah. And he creates a, a nervous energy that, for better or worse, it, it drives a certain kind of, of creative output. That's it. He, he knows, he can obviously, I mean, you look at the films that he's made and sort of Tales from the Crypt, he, he can spot talent. And he knows how to, I don't know if the right words, sort of usher that forward or just sort of get it caught up in his own little tornado. But he manages to sort of create greatness out of that. One of the people that we're trying to, I think, I think you'll be able to, to, to bring him across to, 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 to do an episode uh, interview for season two is Steve D'Souza. Yeah who's got some remarkable stories about the making of Die Hard. Do you know what? I've interviewed Stephen D'Souza last week, so. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we're, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're going to get into some yeah. of the deeper Joel stories that, uh, <clears throat> that Gil, Gil and, and Stephen are, 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 are friendly. So yeah. <laughs> it's not, it's not like, oh, I don't, I have a feeling we'll, we'll, we'll have Steve on. He, he's, he's, uh, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to, I, 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 you had a good visit with Steve? Yeah, no, I mean, great guy. Yeah, in fact, yeah, 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 yeah. so so looking forward to 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 hearing yours and looking forward to 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 tre treading new territory when when we do ours. Well, that's I mean, this second season of your podcast, I'm really looking forward to hearing other crazy stories of you know and and understand how their stories and your stories sort of merge together. Well, you know, once once you've confessed your sins. It makes it easier for others to, to, to sit down and, and confess theirs. You know, and one of the things that, that I, I tried very hard to do in season one, and then I think we'll carry on doing this, as I said, I, I have no axes to grind except for with Sly Stallone. He was the, the only person who, who I, I genuinely have an issue with. Um, you know, as hard as Dennis was to work with, I certainly understand why Dennis did it. You know, I, I understand why Dennis took this movie and, and you know, we, we made him an offer he couldn't refuse. <laughs> the onus was entirely on us. And, you know, and I couldn't tell you why Dennis, you know, no idea, no idea why, why Dennis. And so I can't blame Dennis in the way that I, I blame Sly. So really, I, I, as hard as Dennis was to work with, I, I hope we at least contextualized him to a degree that like, he didn't want to be there, but then again, nobody did. Yeah. And 
I, I, I guess, in a way, Dennis was more honest. And he got paid a ridiculous amount of money to sort of be there and then leave as yeah. quickly as possible. Yeah. Yeah, there, there, there's, there's another point in, in the podcast where I think I said, uh, it's amazing what a million dollars won't buy you. <laughs> but why, why, why Dennis for that? What you could have given a million dollars to sort of another star who probably a bigger brand name or sort of within a, the genre. It seems it like a part of it was part of the Greek tragedy nature of the whole thing. There, there are answers that only only the gods, only the gods know. And I mean, obviously that, that whole bit with Stallone and Joel Silver just made for a very difficult, I mean, that's that's ultimately the bit that kind of upset the boat slightly for, for that movie. I mean, obviously things were off track to begin with, but that sort of brought the storm as such, didn't it? You know, uh, again, things were happening out of our view that had nothing to do with us, and yet were going to involve us completely. Uh, the minute that we that Universal made its decision, and we were suddenly going to be doing a a location non-specific movie, we became uh, a plaything. Nobody, I mean, Universal really suddenly, for some reason, they, well, they still cared. At that point, they still cared. I think they, they didn't care what the product was. Hey, in their mind, it had, it had Bob Z's name on it. It was going to automatically be, be a more salable item than, than whatever it was that we were going to make. They, they took a rather cynical marketing approach. Hard to blame them. Hard, hard to blame them. Uh, and once that was happening, Joel also became, you know, all right, everything was working out fine. He, he had no reason to think that his, his instincts were wrong in any way, shape, or form. And when Stallone approached him and said, hey, Joel, you know, you're going to be making this movie in Vancouver with my girlfriend, Angie, I, I think Joel thought he was, he was being incredibly creative. I don't think it occurred to him for two seconds that that he was that he was he was about to oh to make it you know at the end of the day Angie's okay she, she she's okay but you know that that was that the goal yeah not right for the movie you know <laughs> but but it was not it was never you know, that's part of the story we tell it was not a fair ask that was that's it's it's this is never, never on Angie. This was, this was an, an impossible ask and an unfair ask. And, and, and uh, it was a casting that was made for all the wrong reasons. I, I, I think, God, I, it, it still would have been bordello of blood, but at least if we had gone with what Gil and I wanted to do, Robin Givens, and if, and if she had said yes, it would have been a very different movie. I think we'd have had something closer to at least a Billy Zane kind of villain. Uh, I, I think just, you know, her persona, there's a, there's a bit of wildness to her persona. Well, that's, that would have been great. Angie's a lovely person. She's just a really sweet, sweet person. And not that Robin's, at, at the end of the day, isn't a nice person, but uh, I think... It might have appeared her, on screen. Her, yeah, her natural, you know, the, the, the honest truth is, where casting is concerned, aside from Meryl Streep and a couple of English actors... Really, we don't cast actors to act. I, I've never cast an actor to act. I, I, I want, I cast an actor to be. And what an actor, what, what a really good actor is capable of doing is they're capable of being really, really honest about all of their emotions. And in being honest about, about their own emotions, all right, if you give them another name with some different character attributes, if they can be really honest, in their about themselves they then that honesty will play as honesty about this other character so it's it's their own ability to get vulnerable and emotionally naked in front of a camera yeah. um and that's that's really not that easy to do but hey lo and behold that's what good actors do so my fear is that they will act because every last bit of acting the camera is so close it's going to see it 
and you're going to have to cut all that shit out because no one wants to see you act. We want to see you be. And so, you know, part of, of, of the trick in casting why Billy Zane is great is because Billy's, Billy's being to a degree. He's, he's just got, he's got, he's got this mercurial personality. And, you know, if given the proper dialogue, oh man, he's, he's great. Yeah, it's charisma, you know, that this sort of screen presence, you know. You got to use it. Angie is, 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 she's, she's beautiful and is a lovely personality. And, and really her strength is, is letting that, that beauty shine through her. You know, playing a monster is, is not anywhere, it wasn't at that particular point anyway, anywhere within her skill set. Why would you ask someone with no experience and no skill set to do such a thing? Well, it was, that was never, we never asked that question correctly. We, we, we didn't cast it for that reason. We weren't looking for an actress. We were, we were answering an actor's need on another film set. It was forced on you and that you had to deal with the situation, you know? There was, hey, it's the Greek tragedy again. Yeah. And, and hey, in Joel's mind, he was keeping a big actor happy. And so, hey, if I look at it from Joel's perspective, I see, I see his point of view and, and yeah, that was his bigger, that was the bigger fish that needed to be fried. And That's, so I there mean, he was frying it. I mean, <laughs> we got fried. Yeah. <laughs> what I find strange, though, is, I mean, in a time where everybody talks about IP and sort of trying to squeeze as much out of, uh, out of anything, that there wasn't more care put into protecting the Tales from the Crypt franchise. It just seemed to be, let's just make this film for the sake of making it, just to make a Tales from the Crypt movie, whereas... You could have had you could have still be making these 30 years later or whatever it is yeah i i think there's some truth to that that joel took it a little bit for granted uh, uh hey but that doesn't make joel unique uh it was the song you, you don't know what you got till it's gone they paved paradise and put up a parking lot <laughs> yeah there, there's a little bit of that and hey we were all guilty of of that kind of hubris we it was Tales from the Crypt. Whatever we touched was going to be Tales from the Crypt. Hey, the, the Demon Knight worked out great. Why, why would we think that uh, anything would be different? But things were different because we weren't, we weren't treating it with the same respect. And so consequently, hey, <laughs> you do things for the wrong reasons, it will catch up with you and it will take, it will bite huge chunks from your ass. <laughs> Which, it, yeah, it's a shame. I mean, because it, the Tales from the Crypt, the show is fantastic. I mean, it's if you have to choose a really good, I mean, obviously up there with the Twilight Zone, a great anthology series, that's, it doesn't get any better. You've got your Crypt Keeper, you've got sort of great stars, great music, great directors. That, part of the point of the podcast is that Tales from the Crypt was such a unique experience. It really and truly was not just because we had a good time doing it, but because it was actually a rather unique experience. Um, at that time, when we were when Tales was being made, the feature world and the TV world were different universes entirely. Yeah. There were very little crossover. The occasional Tom Hanks would go from the TV world into the feature world. Robin Williams, for instance. Uh, yeah, there would be a little bit of crossover, but not back. And if you were in the feature world and you ended up on TV, hey man, that meant that meant your career was was heading in the wrong direction. Um, so when you know HBO had done a couple of series, they'd done First and Ten, they'd done Brian Ben Ben's show. Uh, I forget the title, but these were TV shows that happened to be on HBO. When Joel and Dick and uh, Bob and Walter approached HBO, the concept was feature films, feature directors. And this would be like each one, each episode would be like a little feature film. 
in anthologies. He didn't have to be, didn't have to have regular characters. Uh, it was a, it was intended to be features on TV. Yeah. From the get go. And so it was always imagine that way. The first three episodes, you got Zemeckis, you got Donner, you got Walter Hill directing TV episodes. Well, that doesn't happen. Yeah. When John Kassir tells a story in, in, in season two, episode one of the podcast, at the screening of, of uh, those first three episodes uh, before HBO aired them, it was very exciting and people thrilled at, at watching it and afterwards someone was sitting in the audience said wow it's uh, someone said wow that, that that's great tv and the person next to them it was crew someone said man it's not tv it's hbo and the hbo exec in the row ahead heard them heard that became the slogan yeah <laughs> and really that became hbo's slogan it yeah. came out of that came out of the the tales from the crypt screening because the goal was it's not tv it's HBO. It's the kind of TV you can't get anywhere except HBO. And that's that was our mandate doing Tales from the Crypt. Well, that didn't describe any other TV show on TV. Yeah. And, and so the the mandate was was quite unique. And so in order to uh, being an anthology, well, you have to reinvent the wheel every week. And on the one hand, that's hard, but on the other hand, it's a excuse me, it's a glorious challenge. <laughs> it, it really is. And, and the creative team that we assembled that made Crypt, you know, they were they were TV oriented. A lot of a lot of the, the crew, like Greg Melton, our production designer, came out of Freddy's Nightmares. He did Freddy's Nightmares with, with Gil. And that was important because you had to when the, the reason that HBO wanted Gill especially to, to take over season three was because season two, the executive producers, they didn't run Tales like a TV show. They didn't have a deficit partner to cover the overage between what the network was going to pay and what it was going to cost to produce it. <clears throat> so in order to cover the overage, see over the course of season two, HBO had reached into its pocket and, and paid, I think there were a million dollars uh, over budget on in season two, that that those eighteen episodes, and that was why Joel had, had fired all the, the previous producers because they were a million dollars over budget. HBO had said, "Guys, uh, if we're going to do this last season, uh, you need to pay us back that money." And so the executive producers had to go into their own pockets and pay back HBO the million bucks. <laughs> and so that million bucks was taken out, out of our budget. For season three, in, in a sense, I think the only reason that the the, the executive producers wanted to do season three was to get their million dollars back. <laughs> I never thought of that before. Wait a minute. So they at least got their million dollars back. You know that came out of our budget, and the mandate was still. It's not. It's not TV. Yeah. It's HBO. Make many movies. And the strange thing was because we were fresh blood, Gil and I. Uh, I think we we brought new yeah a new we recommitted to the original concept but we also did something else that i think was instrumental in in making tales from the crypt go from being one thing to another and that is we not only not only did we reinvest in the franchise in in the the delicious irony that uh, that bill gaines that flowed out of bill gaines's head that yeah, we we wanted to to recapture the, and and put back into the show, you know, Bill Gaines's vitality. But the other thing that we wanted to do that that I especially was focused on when when I walked into to, to that last meeting with Barry Josephson at, at Silver Pictures, my question was, what I wanted to know what I want to know is what does the Crypt Keeper do when he's not being the Crypt Keeper? When he clocks out at the end of the day, he's just an actor, right? And he clocks out and he goes home. All right, what does he go home to? You know, does he have hobbies? Does he have friends? Does he have, uh, you know, does he like to cook? Does he, when he turns on the TV, what does he like to watch? And by opening up, by giving him a life and wanting to him to show us the life, first of all, it, it gave us a little more, more room for all the, the stupid puns. 
it, it just it just gave us a little more latitude, places yeah. to go to. But it suddenly made him. It it transformed the crypt keeper from this interesting little puppet into a franchise. And in answer to the the question that everyone asked, why can't they redo Tales from the Crypt? Which was my next question. Yes, <laughs> it, it, it comes down to this: the what Bill Gaines created his his creation, what he owns is the Tales from the Crypt comic world, the, all the EC comics. But the Crypt Keeper was a separate creation entirely. The Crypt Keeper in the EC comics looks like a, an old guy with, with long stringy hair, but very much a human is. What Kevin Yeager designed physically is something else entirely. It is not, a, it doesn't come out of the comic except for its name. You could call what, what Kevin designed something else entirely, it'd still be the same thing. But it did not, it might have been inspired by the comics and by the Crypt Keeper, but it's not the Crypt Keeper. It's something else entirely. And then after Kevin designed it, they had to find a voice for it. And hey, if they put the wrong voice with the Crypt Keeper, we would not be having this conversation today. But John Kassir walked in the room. And suddenly the physical thing had a voice. And for a while that was good, but <clears throat> after the first year or two, <clears throat> excuse me, the you know, the voice, it didn't have a purpose. Yeah. It had no in interior life. And so after a while, the voice runs out of things to say because it has got nothing else to talk about. You know, there's an episode called Lower Birth, which, but it's based on a comic. It, it explores. A, a Genesis story for the Crypt Keeper. Okay, fair enough. But, eh, you know, he, he, he's going to sit and talk about that every, every single episode. That's not that interesting. Once we opened up who the Crypt Keeper was, suddenly it transformed him and that had to be written. And so that's that's where I step into the picture. And and the, the Crypt Keeper begins to transform now from... <clears throat> from one thing in, into quite something else entirely. Gill was absolutely instrumental because he directed a lot of it and he produced it. And in order to, for this to come to fruition, these four people had to, had to put their stamp on it, which is what happened. So what, what episode one of, of season two is, is describing is a rather interesting creative process process that resulted in what everyone now understands to be the Crypt Keeper, but he did not fall from the sky, this thing. And the biggest part of the irony is that Bill Gaines does not own this thing. The four people who created the Crypt, the Crypt Keeper do not own this thing because we were all paid for our creations. And the man, the person in essence who paid us is Joel. And so Joel owns the Crypt Keeper. Now, the problem is that as towards the end of Bill's life and after, after Bill was gone, Bill Gaines's family, uh, they, they felt that Joel had not treated Bill Gaines well. And I don't think they would ever make a, a deal with Joel ever again. Life's just too short. And so there is, in essence, a literal divorce between the source material, Tales from the Crypt, Bill Gaines's creation, and the Crypt Keeper. The, the franchise... That makes the Tales, from the Crypt, Tales from the yeah, Crypt it, as such, yeah. It's the face of the franchise. The Crypt Keeper, you know, do you really have Tales from the Crypt without the Crypt Keeper? We're going to create a new Crypt Keeper? Good luck with that. So... Because Tales from the Crypt, the source material, and the Crypt Keeper are now, really for all intents and purposes, divorced, they can never be married again. And so that's what kind of stands between what everybody wants and actually getting it. Right. <laughs> but, but that's not to say that one couldn't come up with an idea, creative people being creative, that captured hey, the Crypt Keeper's spirit and stuck it in the, in the middle of another show. Because that's not an impossible thing. 
And so among the, the things that the, the podcast did, in telling the story, it, it, it gave Gil and I the chance to reconnect. And in episode five of season one, we have a conversation that we had never had, except live, in essence, in front of that, on that Zoom call, which is played straight up. We had never discussed our breakup. Yeah. Ever. We, we had never discussed you know, the, the, the recriminations. Now, I, I was not, I, for me, the point of the exercise, I, I had dealt with all my demons. Hey, I just wanted to have the conversation. I was going to say what, what, what I felt. And Gil was going to say what he felt. It, it, I really was not, whatever the conversation was, the conversation was cool with me. It was more than I expected. And, and I think, yeah, because we were able to be that honest with each other, we were able to, to begin working together again. And, you know, the, at the end of the day, the, there's something so deep there that he's like a brother. And it was very natural to suddenly start talking about this and that again. The next thing you know, he said, you know, what about something like this? And I'm like, well, what if something like this, something a little, something like that? And the next thing you know, we are, we're very close to going out to the marketplace right? with a, a show that I think would, would make all the Tales from the Crypt people really happy. It's, it would capture the essence of Tales from the Crypt in a whole new package, in a whole new world. You know, kind of think The Walking Dead meets Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Okay. With, 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 with the Crypt Keeper, with the Crypt Keeper's spirit right in the middle of it. Uh, and this would be an anthology show as well, or? No, nope. no, this would be a series. This would be a, a, a story. We would, we're going to, what we're thinking about is a world, we, we would bring the audience into a world where there are, there are good monsters and bad monsters, but they're all vicious. <laughs> it is a question of, yeah, you know, some monsters are, we can we can live with some monsters. We can't live with others. So, we, which monsters do you want to live with, people? And so it's, but it's told from the monsters' point of view. That's ultimately it. So it's it's entirely from within the monsters' point of view, and and that's where the fun of it is because the monsters don't think much of us. <laughs> well, I although I although although they do feed on us, yeah. literally, literally. You know, it's a it kind of you are who you eat. <laughs> well, I can't wait, and I can't wait for any updates on that. So, I mean, keep me posted, and oh, share I, that. I, I promise you, we will. I promise you, we will. Well, I think that's the best place to leave it. This nice little teaser for that, Alan. Um, can I just say it's been an absolute joy listening to your stories, and oh, you know, the pleasure. The pleasure's been all mine. Uh, we could go on and on and on, man. Yeah, no, I mean, and hopefully we do it again sometime and talking about this new show and, you know, fingers crossed. When, uh, when, whenever you like, give me a shout. And, and hey, I, I promise you the minute we're ready to, to, to go out with this, one of the things we want to do as part of season two of the podcast is we're going to create a little subscription area. Sure. Where, where we will, you know, like part two of the, of, of the Crypt Keeper interview, that it will go there and we'll... We will involve the audience to a degree in the creative process of this new show. Yep, share that with me, and I'll, like I said, I'll help us spread the word. Because I mean, like I said, I love the show, and I love the podcast, and anything. Oh, thank I can you do so much. I, and as always, I, it is it is the the lovely thing. We'll end it here. The lovely thing about about these new media is that it, it gives the creative people and and the audience that 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 wants what they're creating, it gives us a bond. Yeah. Wow. What could be better than that? Well, that's true. And again, thank you. And to be speaking with somebody from a show that I've loved for years, it's, it's been an absolute joy. So, so thank you. And yeah, definitely keep in touch. Uh, that's, a, that's a threat, my friend. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Movies and Focus podcast. You can download it wherever you get your podcasts, and I hope that you tell your friends about it. That's it for this time, and I'll see you at the movies.